to inspire small business owners. Business Wars is showcasing successful companies that started out small. Here are their inspirational and motivational stories presented by Dell. And if you need tech advice, Dell Technologies Advisors can help you find the right solutions for your business. It's March 2005, and in Johnstown, upstate New York, Humdi Yulakaya is in his office, tidying his desk. He grabs a pile of unsorted papers and starts tossing unwanted items into the waste paper basket. Ulakaya is a 34-year-old Kurdish immigrant. He grew up in Turkey, milking sheep on his family's farm. Now he runs a small feta cheese business. He flings a coffee-stained pizza menu into the basket and looks at the next item. It's a postcard from a real estate firm advertising a recently shuttered yogurt factory. Ulakaya drops it straight into the trash. But as he continues his clear-up, the postcard lingers in his mind. He's always wanted to make yogurt, but not any yogurt. No, he wants to make the tart, creamy, custard-thick Greek yogurts that his family makes back in Turkey. He loathes the runny, sugary, sweet yogurt sold in America. To him, it's horrible. Little better than baby food. Ulakaya glances at the waste paper basket. Maybe he could... No, no, that's ridiculous. He turns back to his papers. But his eyes soon drift back to the bin. It's like the postcards calling him. He discards the papers he's holding, gets on his knees, and fishes through the waste paper basket. He pulls the crumpled postcard from the garbage and stares at the photograph of the mothballed factory. Then, he calls the realtor. I uh, got your postcard, the one about the yogurt plant in New Berlin. I'd like to see it. 4 p.m. tomorrow. Perfect. See you there. Ulukaya hangs up and looks again at the postcard, at the factory that could help him realize his dream of introducing America to the delights of Greek yogurt. There's just one problem. Ulukaya can't afford to buy it. Small businesses are grappling with the impact of these uncertain times and looking for resources. That's why Dell Technologies assembled an all-star lineup of podcasters to create the first-ever virtual conference to share advice and inspiration for small businesses. Dell Technologies is here. From keeping you connected while working remotely with Windows 10 and Microsoft Teams to providing relevant content for businesses. Just search Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on Radio.com, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. To honor small businesses, we're bringing you two special episodes of Business Wars presented by Dell Technologies. In these episodes, we're telling inspiring stories of companies that started small but overcame the odds to become household names. On the last episode, we recounted how Atari and Red Bull brought novel products to market on a tight budget. Now, we're tracing the stories of two small businesses that faced a different challenge breaking into markets dominated by huge corporations. 
We're talking David's up against Goliath's here. And first up is Chobani, the Greek yogurt company that caught Yoplait and Danon napping. It's March 2005, and Hamdi Ulukaya is in the dirt parking lot of a remote factory just north of New Berlin in Chenego County, New York, about 200 miles north of New York City. He gazes at the dilapidated yogurt factory with its tall cylindrical milk silo. It's about the size of one and a half football fields. Gray paint is peeling from the walls, and weeds are invading the sad-looking lawns that dot the grounds. Across the street is a ramshackle bar with a couple of Harleys and an old pickup truck parked outside. It reminds Ulukaya of the backwoods bars he's seen in movies, the ones where there's always a fight and everyone turns to stare when a stranger walks in. Still, Ulukaya hasn't driven 90 miles from his home just to turn back. He turns back to the factory and strides through the entrance. The plant manager is there waiting for him. Good to meet you. Follow me. The manager leads Ulukaya onto the factory floor, where a skeleton crew is covering the machinery with plastic. Don't mind them, they're just doing the final cleanup. So we make, well, made, Briar's yogurt here. Factory built in 1920. Kraft's owned it since 1928. Ulukaya examines the factory's shiny metallic machinery. He knows enough about making yogurt to know this equipment is worth more than the factory's asking price. He turns to the manager. Is the equipment included in the price? Yeah, Kraft doesn't want the hassle of unloading it. That a problem? No, not a problem at all. A few days later, at a Johnstown pizzeria, Ulukaya shares his plan to buy the factory with a friend. It's even got most of the equipment I'll need. Ulukaya's pal frowns. Have you thought this through? If Kraft can't make money out of that factory, how do you expect to? I don't know. I don't know. I just want to try. Jump in the water. See if I can swim. And if you drown? <laughs> yeah, well, it's not about the money. It's about seeing how far I can get. You hear yourself, right? You're talking about taking on Yoplay and Dannon with all their sophisticated marketing and clever merchandising and money and all that. I don't believe they're all that. When I started in business, I didn't understand accounts. Didn't even know if I was making or losing money. Then I asked my accountant, explain it to me like I'm a child. It was actually very simple. People make things seem more complicated than they really are. <laughs> Even if that's true, they've still got way more money and people than you. But they're just people. People in an office with a lot of bureaucracy. They have money, but they move slow. I can be quicker. Undaunted, Ulukaya starts a new company called Argo Farms and goes looking for financing. He borrows money from two banks and the Small Business Administration. He also gets a grant from Chenego County, which wants to see the factory reopen. Together, they give Ulukaya enough to buy the factory and arm himself with half a million dollars of working capital. Raising the funds is an achievement in itself. But now, Ulukaya's got to figure out a way to make a success of it. It's August 2005, and on the factory floor, Ulukaya is holding Argo Farm's first-ever team meeting. His team's small, just a master yogurt maker from Turkey, 
plus the four former craft employees he hired to run the factory. The factory technician looks at his new boss. Well, what now? Ulukaya isn't sure. He's been too focused on acquiring the factory to think about that. <laughs> well, I've just seen the electricity bill, so the first thing we do is turn off the lights. Then we repaint the outside walls. What? Why? Because I don't know what to do next, but I know the walls look horrible. The team spends the following days painting the factory bright white. And as they paint, they bond, becoming a tight-knit unit, ready for the challenge ahead. But while the team is ready, the recipe is not. And Ulukaya knows he's only got one shot to get it right. Money's too tight for Argo Farms to survive a failure. And that means his yogurt's got to be perfect. The company spends months honing the recipe, inching ever closer to the delicious, strained, high-protein Greek yogurt that Ulukaya envisages. Meanwhile, he pours most of his remaining money into the design of the yogurt's six-ounce cups. He knows packaging is critical. He can't afford advertising, and he knows that starting out, stores will relegate his yogurt to the least desirable place on any supermarket aisle, the bottom corner. If his yogurt is to stand a chance, it's got to leap out at shoppers. The result are bowl-like cups that are shorter, wider, and sturdier than the average yogurt cup. He also uses the latest printing technology to give the cups eye-catching graphics that are brighter than competitors, making them hard to miss. After 18 months, the yogurt's recipe and cups are ready. Ulukaya calls it Chobani, a name inspired by the Turkish word for shepherd. And in October 2007, the first cases are shipped to a grocer in Long Island, New York. Ulukaya spends the next week on edge, desperate for news about how Chobani's selling. Every day drags on forever. Then finally, the grocery store calls. Ulukaya can't contain himself. Tell me, how did it sell? We've sold out. We want another 300 cases. <laughs> That's great. But, but who's buying it? The same people or, or different people? What's it matter? Uh, well, if different people are buying it, it means they like the packaging. If it's the same people, it means they like the product and will keep buying it. Well, then I've got good news. The same people are buying it, and they're telling their friends to buy it, too. Encouraged, Ulukaya and his sales chief, Kyle O'Brien, sit down to plan next steps. And Ulukaya's already aiming high. I want Shabani in big stores like ShopRite and Costco. O'Brien shakes his head. Hamdi, places like that charge slot fees. You pay to be on their shelves. We should start in specialty stores that don't charge slot fees and grow from there. No, no, no. I want Chobani to be available to all. Quality yogurt shouldn't be a privilege. How much are these slot fees? Well, a supermarket chain like ShopRite might charge north of $100,000. You can't afford it. Ulukaya thinks for a moment. There must be a way. And then it hits him. A week later, and Ulukaya and O'Brien are in ShopRite's New Jersey headquarters. Across the table, ShopRite's buyer scoops another spoonful of Chobani into his mouth. Hmm, this is good stuff. 
I like the packaging and the suggested retail price of $1.29. Tells people it's special without pricing them out like most craft brands. Yeah, I'm happy to carry it in all our 280 stores. So we're looking at a slot fee of $150,000. O'Brien shoots Ulukaya and I told you so look. Ulukaya turns to the buyer. <laughs> we don't have that much money. Can we pay in yogurt? The buyer looks confused. Pay us yogurt? Yes. You don't pay us until you've sold enough to cover the fee. What happens if your yogurt doesn't sell? We buy it back. Thought you said you had no money. If you've got no money and your yogurt doesn't sell, then how do I recover the slot fee you owe us? Then you get our factory. The buyer stares, mouth agape at Yulukaya for a moment, and then composes himself. Wow. Uh, all right, then. We'll put Chobani on shelves. Four weeks later, ShopRite's buyer calls. Ulukaya takes the call with O'Brien at his side. I got you on speakerphone. Kyle's here, too. Hamdi, I, I don't know what kind of crap you put into those cups, but my God, we cannot keep them on our shelves. Your yogurt's hot stuff. We need more. Pronto. After the call, Ulukaya turns to O'Brien with a serious look on his face. This changes everything. I know, we'll be in other big stores in no time. That's not what I mean. I thought the challenge was selling Chobani, but it's not. Okay, I give up. What is the challenge? Making enough. If we're selling this fast, the big companies will notice us soon. We've got to ramp up production before the big guys grab the market from us. From that moment on, Argo Farms moves fast. As sales accelerate, it hikes production from 10 to 100,000 cases a week. Then, it borrows the money to expand the factory's capacity fourfold. But with its money tied up in the race to expand, Argo Farms must find low-cost ways to spread the word about Chobani. It turns to social media, engaging with everyone who mentions its brand. Next, it creates the Chomobile, a blue truck that roams the nation handing out free Chobani. And the Chomobile team soon discovers that Chobani's appeal goes beyond the stereotypical yogurt eater. It's September 2010, and in Atlanta, people are lining up at the Chomobile for free yogurt. At the front is a woman and her pumped-up, thick-necked boyfriend. After the woman takes her cup, the server offers one to her boyfriend. No thanks. Yogurt's women's food. You sure? Chobani's not like most yogurt. It's got twice the protein and no fat. Huh, <laughs> really? Yeah. We strain our yogurt so it's got less sugar, fewer carbohydrates, and more protein. You sure you don't want to try it? All right, give me one. By the time the Chomobile finishes its coast-to-coast -to -coast tour, Chobani's taking the yogurt aisles by storm. By 2011, Argo Farms is producing a million cases a week. That's more than 600 million cups of Chobani a year. That year, Chobani claims 18% of America's $4.3 billion yogurt market. Its lightning-fast rise leaves Yoplait and Dannon scrambling to catch up. 
Today, Chobani is so well established that Ulukaya now runs an incubator supporting small food startups. But small companies have been getting the jump on industry giants for years. Sometimes their edge is novelty, but it can also be sheer persistence. And that was the case with one of the best known brands on earth, Wrigley's. Hey, I'm David Brown, host of Business Wars. And together with other top podcasters, I'm one of the hosts of the Dell Technologies Small Business Podference, a virtual conference via podcasts that shares advice and inspiration for small businesses during these uncertain times. Tune in now at DellTechnologiesPodference.com and check out tips and inspiration to help your business. And if you need tech advice, Dell Technologies Advisors will be happy to assist you in finding the right solutions for your business. It's late 1893, and in Chicago, a grocer is loading canned peaches onto his shelves. With you in a moment. Take your time, Arthur. The grocer recognizes that voice. It's William Wrigley Jr. He turns to see the broad-shouldered Wrigley standing with his thumbs hooked into his waistcoat pockets. Mr. Wrigley, pleasure to see you. How's business? Good, good. In fact, I've got a new chewing gum to show you. The grocer perks up. Last time Wrigley dropped by, he had just created a gum called Juicy Fruit. Now it's the most popular gum he sells. Well, Mr. Wrigley, if it's as good as Juicy Fruit, I'll place an order. Wrigley pulls a five-cent packet of gum from his waistcoat. On the wrapper are the words, Wrigley's Spearmint. The storekeeper looks crestfallen. Oh, no, no, not spearmint. I don't want spearmint gum. Last time I stocked some, the entire store reeked of it. Spearmint's just too strong. People don't care for it. Wrigley unwraps the packet and offers a stick to the grocer. My gum's different. Others mix spearmint leaves in with their chickle gum base. I don't. I use essential oil, which creates a mild, refreshing flavor. Just try it. Gingerly, the grocer takes the stick and pops it into his mouth. His eyes widen as a cool, crisp, minty sensation spreads through his mouth. It's nothing like the overpowering spearmint gums he's tried before. You're right. This is different. Pleasant, even. Still, I just don't think my customers will go for it. Wrigley doesn't flinch. You see, he's got a proven method for nudging doubtful retailers into placing orders. Premiums. Before you decide, let me tell you about the deals I can offer. Buy one box for 85 cents, and I'll give you a high-quality Iroquois hatchet. For free. There's more. If you buy 12 boxes, I'll give you a pure aluminum coffee percolator. Wrigley senses the storekeeper's resistance crumbling. As he always says, people can't resist getting something for nothing. But if you want a real steal of a deal, buy 60 boxes of my gum for $50, and in return, you'll get a solid oak desk. It's a wonderful desk with pigeonholes, self-locking docks, and compartments for your books. In fact, I use one myself. It'll last a lifetime and... You'll clear $10 profit on the gum. What do you say? Moments later, Wrigley leaves the store 
with a $50 order in the bag. But while his giveaways deliver sales, it's an expensive way to sell five-cent shoes. Sure, when he picks the right premium that wins over retailers, sales boom. But when he gets it wrong, he finds himself saddled with a warehouse full of unwanted premiums and nursing a loss. So even as sales rise, Wrigley's scraping by. Most of his money is locked up in warehouses filled with premiums. His office is still a cramped storeroom. And like most small businessmen, he's a man of many hats. He's not just the owner, he's the chief salesman, the marketing director, the production manager, the bookkeeper, and he packs the boxes too. Over the next few years, through sheer determination and hard work, he slowly makes headway. Trouble is, profits are razor thin. In the days when small-time gum makers can scrape by in peace are ending. It's spring, 1899, and in an upscale Chicago restaurant, Charles Flint is whining and dining Wrigley. Flint's a Wall Street financier, a champion for the best trend in business, monopolies. He's already masterminded a mega-merger of rubber companies to create U.S. rubber. Now, he's about to do the same for chewing gum by creating the American Chickle Company. He swirls the wine in his glass and explains his plan to Wrigley. The top six chewing gum companies have already agreed to join the trust. You should sell your business to the trust as well. You've done a good job. It's time you cashed in. Wrigley sits back in his chair. Uh, thanks, but I'm not interested. Flint's eyes narrow. Mr. Wrigley, let me speak plainly. When it forms, American Chickle will be, by far, the biggest chewing gum company of all. It will own all the big brands and most of the factories. Those outside it stand not a chance. American Chickle will have all the benefits of monopoly status, efficiency, control of raw material prices, no need to spend excessively on advertising, and the ability to extract maximum profit. Sir, this is your chance to become wealthy. Mr. Wrigley, seize it. Wrigley lights a cigar and looks Flint in the eyes. Well, thanks for the invitation, but I prefer to do things my way. <laughs> Very well, Mr. Wrigley. It is, after all, your funeral. In June 1899, Flint's mega-merger goes ahead. Soon, American Chickle Company is bearing down on its rivals. It heads to Mexico and gains near total control of the chickle latex needed to make chewing gum. It seems inevitable the holdouts will fall, but Wrigley is not going down without a fight, and he's quietly amassed a $100,000 battle fund. Wrigley's plan is to spend it all on advertising. Next to the $400,000 American Chickle spends on advertising every year, Wrigley's ad budget is small, but Wrigley's not thinking national. He puts all his chips on one place, New York City, the biggest gum market of all. In 1902, he bombards the five boroughs with posters, store signs, billboards, and newspaper ads. And New Yorkers 
ignore them all. Wrigley's ad blitz doesn't even register. It's 1903, and Wrigley's at a Chicago boxing club with a friend. As they strap on their gloves, Wrigley mentions his failed bid to break into the Big Apple. His friend is shocked. He should be. One hundred grand in 1903 is equivalent to six million dollars today. I'm sorry it's been so disastrous. Wrigley shrugs. I don't care. I've been broke before and I never lost a night's sleep over it. I'm going to save up and try again. All right. Ready to box? In 1906, Wrigley sinks another $100,000 in a New York ad blitz. But this time, he's not going after the Big Apple. Instead, he's looking upstate to Buffalo, Rochester, and Syracuse. Soon, the three cities are under siege. Everywhere people go, Wrigley's brand haunts them. It hangs in store windows. It lurks in newspapers. It rides with them on streetcars and looks down on them from billboards. It's less a campaign of persuasion and more a battering ram shattering all resistance. And upstate New York doesn't hold out for long. Sales of Wrigley's Spearmint soar. Within months, Wrigley's amassed another quarter million dollars for another run at the Big Apple. But just as he's ready to launch, disaster strikes. It's October 1907, and there's turmoil on Wall Street. A botched attempt to manipulate the market has sparked panic, and banks are collapsing. As the economy tanks, Wrigley's concerned associates gather in Chicago. Mr. Wrigley, now is not the time to launch a campaign in New York. Other companies are canceling their ads. We should do the same. Wrigley shakes his head. No, no, we press on. In hard times, people cling to small luxuries like chewing gum. Besides, how much are newspaper ads now? Uh, down to a quarter of what they were before the panic. Wrigley smiles. Then I'll be getting a million-dollar campaign for a quarter of the price. Soon after, Wrigley's ads blanket New York City. He also ensures retailers stock his gum by mailing them coupons for a free box of Wrigley's Spearmint. So when New Yorkers want gum, Wrigley's is always in easy reach. Within a year, sales of Wrigley's Spearmint grow sixfold to more than $1 million a year. But rather than pocket the profit, Wrigley buys more ads, which further fuel sales. And he does it again and again. By 1911, the American Chickle Company is reeling. It thought it had the gum business locked up. Instead, Wrigley's come from behind and turned Wrigley's Spearmint into the nation's favorite chew. It's winter 1911, and at Wrigley's Chicago offices, a newspaper reporter is there to profile America's new king of gum. Mr. Wrigley, you now control 60% of the market. What is the secret of your success over American Chickle? Wrigley smiles. <laughs> That's simple. Advertising. You see, advertising is like a locomotive. You got to keep shoveling coal into the engine. Once you stop stoking, the fire goes out. Oh, sure. The train runs on its own momentum for a while, but it'll gradually slow down. 
and it'll come to a dead stop. Well, me, I just never let that fire go out. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. If you tap or swipe over the cover art, you'll see some offers from our sponsors. And we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. And hey, if you like what you've heard, it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe while you're at it. Another way to support us is by going over to Wondery.com survey and answer a few short questions. Don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said at the time, but the dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. <laughs>